This is the Intego Mac Podcast. The voice of Mac security. For Thursday, September 16th, 2021. This week's Intego Mac Podcast security headlines include Apple operating system updates arrive to address a couple of nasty vulnerabilities. Sabotage your own files? Apparently, that's a thing. We'll tell you about corruptophile websites. And of course, we've got a look at what was announced this week at Apple's California streaming event. Now, here are the hosts of the Intego Mac Podcast, veteran Mac journalist Kirk McElhern and Intego's chief security analyst, Josh Long. Good morning, Josh. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you, Kirk? I'm doing just fine. This is the day after an Apple event with new products. We're going to talk about that later, but we've got a couple of interesting stories about malware and strange things and security updates to talk about. Yes, that's right. Where to begin? Let's see. So on Monday, Apple released patches for two vulnerabilities that were apparently being exploited in the wild. And these vulnerabilities applied to all of the Apple operating systems, macOS, iOS, iPadOS, watchOS. I don't think they released an update for tvOS. I don't think so. Yeah, but all the other things basically got patched. So there were two vulnerabilities. One was in a component called Core Graphics, and Apple describes the impact as processing a maliciously crafted PDF may lead to arbitrary code execution. Apple is aware of a report that this issue may have been actively exploited. Now, that's the really interesting one that we'll come back to. The other one was a bug in WebKit, where processing maliciously crafted web content may lead to arbitrary code execution. And Apple said that it was also aware that it had been actively exploited. Now, though, so the WebKit vulnerability, that's something that was patched. Uh, basically, it's, it's a Safari-related vulnerability. So if you were browsing to a malicious website, it could have been able to execute code or you know, run basically software on your computer just by visiting that website. That's obviously kind of a bad thing. And apparently, somebody was using that in the wild. And it's not just Safari, because Mail uses WebKit to render emails in HTML. So someone can send you a phishing email, and you may not click on the link, but it may be too late because there may be code running in the background. Right. There's a lot of components of iOS, macOS, etc. that all use WebKit because it's just really easy to develop something that, you know, displays like a web page. And so WebKit is used all throughout the operating systems. I said we would get back to that core graphics one about processing a maliciously crafted PDF. So it turns out that this vulnerability is one that had been exploited by the NSO group. You remember we talked about the Pegasus spyware on iOS not too long ago, back in July. So this was a, a vulnerability that was being used by Pegasus spyware. And thankfully, Apple has patched it. Um, now, so you want to make sure that you've got all your devices up to date. We know that this had been used um, to exploit and break into iOS devices. Um, so particularly, make sure you're updating your iPhone and also, of course, iPad. And it's good to patch this on macOS as well, because theoretically, that same vulnerability could be used to exploit a Mac. Okay, so these security updates apply to macOS Big Sur, but not every operating system, right? 
So one of those vulnerabilities was the WebKit vulnerability was not patched in watchOS, um, which may just be because it might not apply to watchOS. It may not be exploitable on that platform. But the other one, this is, I think, a much more serious issue. Um, the Pegasus-related vulnerability was evidently not patched for macOS Mojave. Why is that? One would assume that Mojave probably does have that same vulnerability that existed in Catalina and Big Sur. Um, it's, you know, it's using the same technologies to uh, interpret PDFs and so forth. So that seems pretty odd that Apple didn't patch that for macOS Mojave. Now, I, I did reach out to Apple. Uh, Apple has not responded to me, not terribly surprisingly because Apple often doesn't respond about things like this. And they've been busy this week. Well, yeah, of course they had a big presentation yesterday and all that kind of stuff. So we don't know exactly what the deal is here. Maybe theoretically that vulnerability doesn't apply to Mojave, but I would assume at this point that it does and that Apple's just not going to patch it for Mojave for whatever reason, or maybe they'll eventually patch it. Maybe they didn't feel it was urgent enough um, to patch it for Mojave right now, and maybe they'll get to it eventually. Um, I'm actually doing a presentation in two weeks at Objective by the Sea, um, a Mac security conference, where I'll be talking about discrepancies between Apple's patches that they release for different versions of Mac OS. And we've talked before in the past about how Apple typically patches the current and two previous operating systems, but occasionally they don't patch everything for the two previous. And this seems to be one of those cases. So um, I'll dig into this as much as I can, and I will certainly mention this in my presentation in two weeks. One more point on, on these vulnerabilities. Um, every once in a while, people will ask us about, okay, well, what if I'm running an operating system older than the N-2? What if I've got uh, High Sierra instead of Mojave? Um, you're not going to get patches from Apple anymore at all for those operating systems. Anything that's older than the N-2 gets no patches from Apple. So that's worth noting. Also, people ask, okay, well, what if I'm running Intego software? Can I still be protected from malware? The answer is yes, you can. And, and we do still support those older operating systems. But the important thing to note here is that although we can block malware, which may try to exploit these vulnerabilities, if there's a vulnerability in the operating system, the only real way to fix that is if Apple releases a patch. So you won't be fully protected from all exploits and vulnerabilities if you've got an older operating system. So we do recommend that you stay on the latest operating system that your hardware supports. Okay, you have an interesting article on the Mac security blog, and this is something I had never heard of. The article is entitled, Are Corrupt My File Sites Safe? Here's Why to Avoid Corruptophile Services. I had never heard of this. Why would people want to corrupt their files? This is a great question. And you know what? I had actually never heard of these either until just this week. And I happened to just stumble across this while doing some unrelated research. I found that people had been searching for corrupt my file and corrupt a file. And I thought, okay, corrupt my file. That sounds like the name of a website. And so I I tried, you know, searching for these things and I found that there are at least a few different websites where you can upload a file. And the whole purpose of this website is to take that file that you submit to them 
and corrupt it. And they break it in such a way that you can't just double click and open it and have it, you know, open properly and smoothly and as without error messages and things. So like, what's the purpose of this? This, it seems kind of weird. Well, they explain the purpose on these websites. One of the websites says, didn't finish that assignment, need more time to finish the report. Life happens, upload your file and we'll corrupt it for you. Then you can download it and send it to whomever and they'll only be able to open a corrupted file. This will give you some precious and sweet extra time. And another one of the sites says, your boss, customer or teacher will think you delivered it on time, yet he can't open it due to technology hassle. Mission completed. <laughs> so basically, the <laughs> this is the this is the technological equivalent of my dog ate my homework. Yes, yes, except that this is something that people aren't expecting. You know, if you use the my dog ate my homework excuse, uh, everyone's heard that. However, everyone has also experienced at some point that they've tried double clicking on a file and just didn't open. You know, you're more likely to be a little more forgiving, assuming that there was an actual technological glitch, right? And so that's the idea. So obviously, there are some ethical problems with this whole idea of you know uploading a file and getting a corrupted version back just so that you can pretend like there was an accident and so you can get extra time for a report or an assignment or whatever. That's that's an ethical issue. But the idea is still kind of interesting, but what about these sites? What are they actually doing with the files that you submit to them? That's the real question. I would say if, if it's a report for a class in college, it's not a big deal. But imagine someone has a report or, or a contract that they have to finish for their job, and they run it through here, and you've just given really useful data to someone you don't know in a country you don't even know where they are, and this could be valuable data for them. Well, exactly, yeah. And I run through a few different potential scenarios in my article. So one of the, the things that people probably don't realize is that a lot of files actually contain metadata that can personally identify you. Um, for example, you may or may not know that Microsoft Word, Excel, and PowerPoint files all have hidden fields um, called author and company that normally you can't just see when you open a document. You actually have to go into the properties of that document and Microsoft Office will dutifully record the name and the company of the person who registered that product in every file that you create with your Microsoft Office product. And so that means that your name and your employer may show up in every file that you create. And so if you're uploading that to a site, think about this. You know, they now know your IP address, presumably, because you accessed their web server to upload the file. So now they have your IP address, and they also have your real name and the company that you work for. That's a kind of a lot of information that you're giving away and may not even be realizing that you're giving away to some website. And that's not even talking about the potential sensitive stuff like like we were, you were talking about. If you let's say you worked in an HR department and, you know, you had to submit a report to your boss and, you know, maybe there's some sense potentially sensitive company information. Maybe you've got employee records um, or things like that. And and now if you're uploading that file to a site like this, 
you don't you just don't know who operates the site. You don't know how ethical they're going to be. They're obviously encouraging you to do unethical things. Right. And so I would not really want to trust them with my data. So um, there's a few other considerations and, and things to think about. So um, we'll have a link to my article in the show notes for today's podcast episode. Okay, there is a new 250,000-strong DDoS botnet terrorizing the internet. Ooh. Yeah, okay. So (laughs) I I didn't want to spend too much time on this, but I thought it was worth mentioning just because we talk a lot about the importance of making sure that your router is up to date. And depending on your internet provider, you may not really be able to have any control over whether your router gets updated automatically or not. But if you have purchased your own router, then you need to be responsible for making sure that it gets patched. So most of these 250,000 infected devices as part of this botnet all come from one router manufacturer, um, which I think is pronounced Mikrotik, M-I-K-R-O-T-I-K. This is, I think, a Latvian company, and uh, they actually make a lot of routers that are they're fairly popular. I've actually heard this brand name a few times. So it's important to realize that if you've got an old router, make sure it's patched. If you haven't logged into it for a long time, at least check and see if there are updates available. This particular vulnerability that's being exploited by this botnet was patched in 2018. So that means that all of these infected devices haven't been updated in years. That's kind of a problem. Okay, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about all of Apple's new products. Protecting your online security and privacy has never been more important than it is today. Intego has been proudly protecting Mac users since 1997, and our latest Mac protection suite includes the tools you need to stay protected in 2021. Intego's Mac Premium Bundle X9 includes Virus Barrier, the world's best Mac anti-malware protection, Net Barrier for powerful inbound and outbound firewall security, Personal Backup will keep your important files safe from ransomware, and much more to help protect, secure, and organize your Mac. Best of all, it's compatible with macOS Big Sur and the latest Apple Silicon Macs. Download the free trial of Mac Premium Bundle X9 from Intego.com today. When you're ready to buy, Intego Mac Podcast listeners can get a special discount by using the link in this episode's show notes at podcast.intego.com. That's podcast.intego.com. And click on this episode to find the special discount link exclusively for Intego Mac Podcast listeners. Intego, world-class protection and utility software for Mac users, made by the Mac security experts. Okay, Josh, I have a feeling that you watched Apple's event yesterday, which was yet another virtual event. And we were talking before the show how people used to say that Apple presentations and keynotes were attempting to be commercials, and now they are commercials. They're hour and a half commercials. (laughs) I really prefer this format. I really like the fact that it's not just people in front of a stage, in front of an audience of people who are going to cheer when they say something interesting. I like the variety of the lighting, of the sets, of the camera work, having more people talking than what we were used to in the past. So I hope they continue going forward. Now, 
I remember when they all these Apple events used to start with stories about Apple retail stores, you know, films of the new ones, and we've had this many visitors and all that. That's over. Now we're talking about Apple TV Plus program. 35 Daytime Emmy Awards or some Primetime Emmy. I don't even know how many there are. 20 of the awards were for Ted Lasso. Now, I'm thinking if you've got like 30 shows and movies and it's only one of them that's getting all the awards, you better rethink the kind of content that you're having. But of course, they're going to tout the ones that are popular. So they showed some teasers for forthcoming shows. And in fact, this Friday, the morning show comes back, which is one of the shows that I've been enjoying on Apple TV+. And then we get to the iPad. I've got an article on the Intego Max security blog, and I'll link in the show notes. And one thing I pointed out is that to me, the iPad is the most democratic of Apple's product lines because you have things at various prices. The new ninth generation iPad, or what they just call the iPad, without some sort of a modifier, starts at $329. That's a fair price for what it is. When you consider it's pretty much what the iPad Air was a few years ago, it doesn't have the latest processor, but that doesn't matter. It doesn't have the best display, but that doesn't matter. You can use it with the first generation Apple Pencil with external keyboards. And I think it's a really good device for people who don't want to spend more. On the other hand, they updated the iPad mini. And and I can say for a fact that 67% of the people on this call, which is Josh, myself, and our producer, Doug, have ordered iPad minis. I'm not. Josh is not the one who did (laughs) order. Right. I have always said that the iPad mini to me is like my paperback iPad compared to the big one. I like reading on it, and I like what they've done here. They've gotten rid of the home button. They're making it kind of like the iPad Air with the power button that doubles as a Touch ID button. And it's a little bit bigger because the bezels are smaller, but it really annoyed me that the people presenting this kept talking about the edge-to-edge display, like they didn't even look at the photos of the thing. The bezels are like a centimeter wide, each one. Yeah, I I thought that was a little bit odd, too. And I do have to say that if I were in the market for an iPad, the Mini is, you know, looking pretty nice these days. That's a a big processor bump. I think the previous generation had an A12 processor, and so they went all the way to the latest A15, which is pretty cool. Um, And also, now, the entire iPad line has that, uh, what do they call that functionality, The, the facial tracking kind of follows you where you go? It's called Center Stage, Center Stage. And it's part of FaceTime. And I can link to an article where I did a video showing how it works. As you move around, as people come in and out of the frame, it zooms in, it zooms out, it follows them. It's very clever. It's a very nice idea. So I, I do like that aspect of it. Um, I, I think that um, it really is a, a pretty cool product. Um, I, I'm just not, I'm not really an iPad user. I, I use a Mac so much and I use my iPhone so much. And I, for me, it doesn't really make sense to have like an in-between product, but I can definitely see where if you like that form factor, if you like that style of device, the iPad mini, I feel like is probably one of the best options really at this point. Yeah, it starts at $499, so it's not cheap, but you're getting really high-quality stuff, and you're getting something that's going to last for years. I think that's why they gave it the latest processor, so they won't have to upgrade it again for a few years. So next up was the Apple Watch Series 7, and Apple is practicing what I think we can call consistent iteration. All of the new products that they presented this week are little bumps. The only redesign was the iPad Mini, but it basically inherited the design of the iPad Air. Little changes, nothing earth-shattering, nothing magical. I didn't hear the word magical once, in fact. The Apple Watch Series 7 increases the two sizes each by one millimeter. 
So in the beginning, we had 38 and 42 millimeters. It then moved to 40 and 44. And with the 7, it's going to be 41 and 45. They've increased the screen area by nearly 20% compared to the current Apple Watch Series 6 by that one millimeter, but also making the bezels really tiny. And here you could almost talk about an edge-to-edge -edge display. Yeah, that's true. It actually does look like it goes right up to the edge pretty much. Now, the Apple Watch, I feel like was already a really solid product. And it, it, it didn't feel to me like there was a whole lot of new stuff with this generation other than just going to the edge uh, a little bit more than they did in the, in the Gen 6 uh, version of the watch. But and the Apple Watch is a pretty solid product at this point, and I don't really think there's a whole lot that they need to do to improve it. So I guess that's not too much of a surprise. If, if you're in the market for a watch, I, I feel like there's so little difference between the 6 and the 7 that it doesn't really matter which model you get at this point. Yeah, I don't think that if you've got a 6, you really necessarily need to upgrade to a 7. I will because I really like the watch. I write about this stuff. In fact, the watch to me is a lot more interesting than the iPhone in terms of where it's going. But we may have hit a wall, and, and I think we've hit a wall with the iPhone. We'll talk about that in a minute. They, they've made it... They've, they say the crystal is the strongest ever, and it's got dust resistance and water resistance. And this is nice stuff to have, but these are little tiny tweaks. There's no change in the processor. Not that the watch processor makes a big difference, but if you look at some information about the Apple Watch, the actual model numbers, the Apple's internal model numbers, the ones that they send to the FCC, et cetera, it's still the Apple Watch 6 comma something. So the innards are pretty much essentially the same. It's just they've made it just a little bit bigger to get a slightly better display. Okay, iPhone 13. Now, I think I can state that 67% of the people on this call have ordered new iPhones. Okay, well, <laughs> I, I'm thinking about it. I have not placed an order yet. I thought you were certain. See, I was on the fence, and I've been mentioning that in recent weeks because I've got an iPhone 11. I got the battery changed in June under Apple Care, and it's almost like a new iPhone 11. But I decided to pull the trigger for a whole bunch of reasons, and I'm going to get the iPhone 13 Pro. I almost went for the Pro Max, but I figured I might regret that it's that big. Yeah, okay. So here's here's my thinking on this. Um, so I currently have an iPhone 10s. So this is a four-year-old phone at this point. Um, also, I have a 64 gig model, which um, in hindsight, that was kind of a mistake. So <laughs> my, the, the previous iPhone that I had, I think was 32. And so I thought, oh, going to 64, I'm doubling this, the capacity, right? I'm never going to hit. I mean, not never, but I know better than to say never. But I thought it's going to be really difficult to fill that up. Well, I kind of have. And, and I'm always having to delete. They came out with 4K video exactly. recording capabilities and boom. Yep, exactly. And that that's the thing is I, I love taking videos in 4K. And if I do that, then now my storage fills up really fast. And so although the base capacity on the current model is 128 gigs, I think I probably am going to have to go to the 256. So then the other thing that I've got to consider is, do I want just the regular iPhone 13 or the Pro? The Pro, there's not really that much difference between the two. You get, um, you know, an extra camera lens. So you get the telephoto lens uh, with the Pro model. Um, and a couple of other little changes, but there's not a ton of difference. It costs, you know, a little bit more. 
Um, you do get more battery life, and that's actually one of the other things that I was strongly considering getting a pro model uh, for. So between the extra storage and the extra battery life and the better camera, now I'm talking about like $300 more than the base price for an entry-level iPhone 13. It's It starts getting a little steep. That's about $1,100. Um, it's not cheap, but, you know. Yeah. 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 Well... Again, consistent iteration. There have there are very few changes, and I I put a link in my article to compare the iPhone 11, 12, and 13, and to compare the 11 Pro, 12 Pro, and 13 Pro. And it's kind of interesting to see how little difference there is. However, there's more in the Pro models than you're thinking. There is the telephoto lens, but there's also a macro mode. Macro photography is when you get really close to something. You want to shoot flowers or insects or something like that. Night mode portraits, which take advantage of the LiDAR scanners in the Pro models. The non-Pro models don't have LiDAR scanners. Now, all of them have this new thing where Apple claims that they studied cinematography to develop this cinematic mode. So they showed this this cheesy little like movie, like a kind of Agatha Christie mystery thing called Who Done It, and what they were showing is that when the camera is looking at one person in a movie, you have to focus on that person, and then the focus will shift to the other person when they start talking. Not all the time, but it's relatively common to use what's called rack focus or focus pulling. And they've built this into all of these iPhone 13 models. Not only does it do it automatically, but you can adjust it in post-production. So it's recording multiple depth layers. And if you don't like where it focused, like if it focused on the wrong thing, you can change this afterwards. They had Catherine Bigelow, the Oscar-winning director, demonstrate this and talk about how great it was. So I, I think, Josh, if you're planning to shoot a feature film anytime soon, you should definitely get the Pro model because that's a killer feature. I would have liked to see Apple show this in real life at a kid's birthday party or at a Little League game or something like that. I think they really missed out. On the one hand... Anyone who's an aspiring filmmaker for $1,000 now has an extraordinary tool in their hands. On the other hand, I think we should have seen how normal people can use it. The Pro models also have another feature called ProMotion, which has adaptive refresh rates that go up to 120 hertz. Now, this is interesting. They showed how when you're doing different things, the frame rate changes from, say, 10 frames per second to 120. When you scroll, it goes up so the scrolling doesn't look jumpy. I think one of the main reasons for this is to save battery life because the fewer times that the the display is being refreshed, the less battery power is used. I, I think visually it's not really bothered me on my iPhone 11 that it's not 120 hertz when I scroll, but this is an interesting tool and, and this could be what's contributing to the improved battery life, particularly in the Pro models. Yeah, absolutely. I, I definitely think that's a, a big reason why the battery life is so much better on the Pro. Um, this is, it's kind of a brilliant thing. I, I only, I kind of was thinking to myself as they were giving this presentation, I'm like, are there people who can like detect refresh rates like with their naked eye or maybe, you know, if they're wearing glasses or I, I, are there scenarios where you may not necessarily want the, the refresh rates to be adjusting that much? I think to most people, for sure, for most people, the naked eye is not really going to be able to tell the difference between one refresh rate and another. And so by lowering it when there's no motion on the screen, that's 
brilliant. And they should have done this already because they're basically doing that right now with the Apple Watch. Yeah. That's the whole reason why you can have an always-on display on your Apple Watch now. Right, but the Apple Watch is generally a fixed display. There's not much yeah. movement. There can be when you when you click the digital crown and you scroll through apps, but most of what you do on the Apple Watch is pretty fixed, so it's less of an issue. But yes, I think that's interesting. You would probably see it, and I'll try it when I get the phone, if I were to take a, a video of the phone scroll, you'd see the refresh rate on the phone changing and being out of sync with the frame rate of what's filming it. Right, exactly. Right? So if I'm filming at 30 frames per second, you'd see like the equivalent of jaggies in the video when something happens. Don't forget, don't forget that with the Pro models, you get the surgical grade stainless steel body. I mean, that's kind of impressive, isn't it? I guess. Like, I... I <laughs> I know. I kind of laugh when they say that, you know, and like aluminum with chamfered edges or whatever it's called. They spend a lot of time talking about these nano coatings and stuff that absolutely no one cares about. No one. There are people in the design world who probably really like this, you know, people in in in, in, in the technology of this. But no one cares. No one cares how fast the processor is. No one cares about anything about, you know, how it's made. But Kirk, like the, the regular iPhone 13 model has aerospace grade aluminum. So do I want aerospace grade aluminum or do I want surgical grade stainless steel on the Pro model? Like that, how do I know? It depends on what you're going to use your iPhone for. Am I going to use it in aerospace <laughs> or surgery? I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's kind of funny because they don't have a lot to talk about. So they have to choose things to fill time in some ways. If there were 10 new features, like in the iPhone 6 or whatever, when there were all sorts of new things, then maybe it would be more interesting. I, I kind of miss those Johnny Ive videos, though, because they were there was a certain poetry in those videos where he was talking about the aluminium right. and things. <laughs> right. But one thing to note is that they didn't really talk about how fast the new A15 chip is compared to the A14. And I've got a link in my article to uh, an article on 9to5Mac which is kind of gathering together some opinions suggesting it's not. And some people are actually suggesting that they may have hit a wall in processor performance and that we'll notice this in the coming years that they can only go so small, right, to make these transistors. I think they're at five nanometers. Uh, there's going to be a point where, you know, until they get to quantum computing, there is going to be a point where things stall. Well, I hope that doesn't come terribly soon because now, of course, Macs are also using basically the same processors, right? It's just a, a, a revision of the existing processors that we've had in iPhones and iPads for quite a while now. Right now, we're at a really good spot when it comes to Apple processing technology. The speed um, and everything that you can get out of those processors is really impressive. It blows away anything that Intel or you know AMD, uh, these other chip makers are doing right now. And so I, I do hope that at the very least that Apple does keep that edge over the competitors for the foreseeable future. Well, we're going to have an event in October, undoubtedly, to present some new Macs. And I, I don't know if I've mentioned it on the podcast before, but I know I've mentioned it to you. What I see coming for Apple is parallel processing. So instead of using a single system on a chip, you've got two of them and they're working on different things. And when they need to both work together, they can. If they do hit a brick wall 
for processor power at some point, that's the next way to go. Okay, well, that's enough for this week. We'll be back next week. And let's see, will we have any new gear by next week? I don't think so. The iPad mini is supposed to be delivered on the 24th, so it'll be the following week. The iPhone, ah, just want to mention, they've done something new in iPhone ordering. You can go onto the Apple website and you can pre-order an iPhone. You can even pre get pre-approved for 24 months, 0% financing. They're doing this in a number of countries. So that means when it goes on sale Friday, you don't have to press command R and keep reloading the page because so many people are taking so long to order. You'll have your thing all ready and it's just a single click and you'll get your order through. And I think that's a really good idea. And two reasons why. One, it'll be easier on Friday. And two, they have an idea of how many units they're selling. So they're better hmm. equipped to allocate their stock and to maybe, you know, get certain colors produced more than others. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting point. So um, I think I'm going to wait a little bit just because I, I don't want to get my phone like while I'm out of town or right before I go out of town. So um, I, I think I'm probably going to go ahead and get the iPhone 13 Pro, but I'm going to wait maybe a few weeks before I get mine. Okay, until next week, Josh, stay secure. All right, stay secure. Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every weekly episode, be sure to follow us in Apple Podcasts or subscribe in your favorite podcast app. And if you can, leave a rating, a like, or a review. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on the full line of Intego security and utility software, intego.com.